If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 36 of A Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This episode contains distressing themes, mature language and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. The relatives and loved ones of two separate families make gruesome discoveries less than 24 hours apart. A nationwide manhunt was underway to find the person responsible.
early on the morning of Sunday, July 18, 2004. The police were called to a property in the village of Campbellsforth, North Yorkshire. When they walked inside the multi-storey flat, scene of crime officers noticed blood staining the walls of the living room. As they went upstairs, they saw the bodies of two young women in a bedroom. The women had initially been found by loved ones who were concerned for their safety. As a result, identification was immediate. They were sisters, twins Claire and Diane Sanderson. Diane's partner, Ian Harrison, had been one of the people who made the discovery. When the police arrived at the flat, Ian was shouting, They're dead. The bastard has killed them. Ian told the police that the night before, he had arranged to meet Diane at a pub, but when he called her mobile phone, Claire's boyfriend, Mark Hobson, had answered. Hobson told Ian Harrison about a family emergency. Claire and Diane's father, George, had suffered a heart attack. He continued to tell Ian the twins were distraught and could not come to the phone. The two men arranged to meet at the pub, and after having a few drinks, they went back to the flat Mark Hobson shared with Claire. Ian Harrison told the police that he immediately noticed a putrid smell inside the home, but Mark Hobson told him the odour was caused by problems with the drains in the property. The pair went into the living room, and Ian sat down relaxing on the sofa. As he reclined, he felt something wet seep through his trouser leg. Startled, Ian realised he had sat in blood. Mark Hobson calmly explained it away by telling him Claire had, quote, women's problems. Ian thought no more of it, and sometime later he decided to head home, declining an offer from Hobson to stay the night. Early the next morning, Ian Harrison went to see his girlfriend at the home of her parents. He wanted to check in on Diane's father and offer his support. But to Ian's surprise, her father George answered the door. He was alive and well, but why did Mark Hobson lie? Ian was suspicious about what he had been told the evening before. So Ian and George decided to travel to the flat where Claire and Mark Hobson lived to find out what was going on. When they arrived at the property, they realised the front door was unlocked. However, it seemed like no one was home. Ian and George pushed the door open and went inside, checking each room to look for the 27-year-old twins or any clue as to where they might be. It was in the bedroom Ian and George came across a horrific sight. Claire Sanderson's body was wrapped in black bin liners. The body of her sister Diane lay at the foot of the bed on plastic sheeting with a plastic bag over her head. 
It seemed as though the killer had intended to conceal her body in a similar fashion. Their father, George, later said he knew instantly that Claire was inside the bin bags. Diane was naked and covered in bruises. It was evident that she had been subjected to a barbaric, sustained attack with a blunt instrument. Claire's injuries would not be discovered until the bodies were removed and transported to the coroner's office for examination. The police immediately began looking for Mark Hobson, who was nowhere to be found. A few hours later, Another double murder around 25 miles away in Strensel was reported to the police. A kindly neighbour had checked in on Joan and James Britton, a couple in their 80s. The husband and wife were found dead inside their home. At first, the police suspected the tragedy was a burglary gone wrong. However, the couple would not have posed a threat to any intruder as they were both elderly and infirm. 81-year-old Joan had broken her leg in the months prior and required a walking frame to get around. Her body was found in the hallway. She had an injury to the head and a single knife wound to her back. The blade was still lodged in her body. Her 80-year-old husband James was found in the living room. He sustained a brutal assault with a walking stick as well as being stabbed several times. Joan and James Britton had been married for over 50 years. They met in Hartlepool in 1943 in the midst of World War II. James was an RAF pilot and Joan had joined the Auxiliary Territorial Service. This female military unit provided support to male troops before women were allowed to undertake combat roles. The couple had lived in the North Yorkshire village of Strensel since 1976, where they raised their family. At the time of their deaths, they were proud grandparents. Aside from Joan's broken leg, James had a hearing impairment and also suffered from a condition that left him incapable of walking even the shortest of distances. They relied on family members and neighbours to look out for them. The authorities believed that the assailant had entered the house through the back door and raided the property before unleashing a savage attack on the vulnerable elderly couple. Initially, the police could not definitively link the killings to the murders of Claire and Diane Sanderson. Still, it seemed far too coincidental that there would be four murders within a day in an area that rarely saw four murders a year. Post-mortem examinations of the bodies of Claire and Diane Sanderson revealed disturbing details about their deaths. Diane had been beaten with a hammer before being bound with tape. Her wrists and ankles were tied together 
and a ligature was also found around her neck. Her clothing had been cut off, and the lower part of her body had been shaved. She was subjected to a horrific sexual assault. An object had been violently forced into her body, leaving her with appalling internal injuries. Her left nipple also appeared to have been bitten off. It was unclear if she was alive whilst the assault took place. Diane Sanderson was killed by ligature strangulation or asphyxiation from a plastic bag placed over her head. When medical examiners began Claire Sanderson's post-mortem, they were surprised to find her body in an advanced state of decomposition. Diane's time of death was within a day of the bodies being discovered, but Claire's death likely occurred around a week before they were found. She had been killed by repeated blows to the head with a hammer. The bodies of both women appear to have been washed. A forensic examination was also conducted at the flat where the bodies of Claire and Diane Sanderson were found. A sofa bed in the living room was covered in blood, and indentations in the wall looked to have come from a hammer. Beneath the sofa, investigators found the blood-stained hammer used in the assaults. It seemed likely the victims had been attacked in the living room before being dragged upstairs. Working on this assumption, investigators dusted the lower section of the banisters along the stairs to see if someone had held on to the spindles as they pulled the women towards the bedroom. As suspected, fingerprints were located on the banister. Officers also found prints on the plastic bin liners. After the discovery of handwritten lists, investigators were immediately concerned for the public safety. Several names had been written down. The victims were among those listed. Part of the list read, Big bin liners, tape, tie wraps, fly spray and air freshener, which indicated that the killer had anticipated having to keep Claire and Diane's bodies concealed for a period of time. A quantity of cocaine and other drugs were also discovered inside the property. Postmortems were also carried out on the bodies of Joan and James Britton. Simultaneously, forensic teams combed their home to identify if there were any links to the murders of Claire and Diane Sanderson. James Britton had been beaten over the head with a walking stick before collapsing to the floor. The assailant then stabbed him, piercing his heart and lungs, causing catastrophic blood loss. James's blood was found on the back of a chair, indicating the killer had wiped the blade before attacking Joan Britton in the hallway. She was also struck with a walking stick and then stabbed in the back with the same knife, which perforated her left kidney, diaphragm, stomach and liver. 
fingerprints were identified on items in the Britons' bedroom and on a door. Within days, they were matched to Mark Hobson, confirming that he was involved in the four murders. Hobson had no known connection to James and Joan Britton, so the police were concerned that he was beginning a murderous rampage in the Yorkshire countryside, and they had no idea where he could be. Witnesses came forward to help detectives piece together a timeline of events leading up to the murders. Claire Sanderson had not been seen for over a week prior to her body being discovered, and colleagues confirmed that she had failed to show up for work. Neighbours said that they heard screaming from the flat around the time Claire was believed to have been killed. However, arguments between Claire and Mark Hobson were so regular that neighbours simply closed their windows and turned up their televisions. It would consequently be discovered that Hobson had told a co-worker that he had, quote, picked the wrong sister and that he was determined to have Diane. On July 17th, the day before the bodies were found, Hobson was believed to have called Diane and asked her to come over under the pretense that her sister was sick. Hundreds of officers from a dozen police forces were deployed to try and hunt down the quadruple murderer before Mark Hobson crossed another name off his supposed hit list. Specialist investigators with experience in tracking criminals were called in to assist in the search. Numerous press conferences were held and thousands of flyers were distributed bearing Hobson's profile. A thin white male in his mid-thirties, with a shaved head and a pronounced scar on the left side of his face. After Diane Sanderson's boyfriend Ian Harrison had come to the flat the night before the bodies were discovered, Mark Hobson received a lift from his mother to York District Hospital. He said Claire and Diane were being treated there after being involved in a car accident. It was believed that Hobson then broke into a vacant property before making his way to the Britons' house nearby. Witnesses said that they had seen someone matching his description in the area. After he fled the Britons' house, Hobson went into hiding. People who knew him made appeals for the fugitive to hand himself in. Mark Hobson was born in September 1969. He attended Healthview Primary School in Eastmore and lived with his parents Peter and Sandra and his two sisters. Hobson first met his future wife Kay while they were at secondary school. The relationship did not last, but they reconnected years later when Kay was a young single mother raising two children. Kay's first husband had walked out on her and their son and daughter, Bobby and Emma, but Mark Hobson readily stepped into the role of a father figure. The couple had their first child together some time later. 
when Hobson decided he wanted to adopt Kay's two children who already called him dad. The couple decided to marry. Initially, the relationship seemed stable until Hobson walked out on his wife and children. His life was spiralling out of control. He was binge drinking regularly and his struggles with alcohol were all-consuming. Despite numerous attempts to reconcile, Kay ended the relationship for good when Mark Hobson tried to attack his daughter's boyfriend and damaged the neighbor's property in a drunken rage. His life continued in a downward spiral and his drug use escalated. The next few years of Mark Hobson's life were peppered with violence. In March 2002, Hobson attacked a man in the street named William Brace, leaving the victim severely wounded after stabbing him five times in the chest with a butterfly knife. They had been arguing over rumours that Hobson had slept with Brace's girlfriend. Brace spent time in intensive care after the knife punctured his lung. Mark Hobson was released on bail before Brace was discharged from the hospital. At a court hearing in February the following year, Hobson was sentenced to two years of probation and 100 hours of community work after pleading guilty to wounding with intent. He claimed that the attack was in self-defence. Later that year, Hobson attacked his teenage daughter, punching her in the head. This subsequently led his children to cease all contact with him. Even after brutally attacking his daughter, Hobson continued drinking and taking drugs while making vile outbursts. Not long after, while working at a factory, Hobson met Claire Sanderson, and within a few months they began living together. Their relationship was marred with alcohol abuse and violence. The police had been called to the flat on a number of occasions after witnesses saw Hobson attacking his partner. In one incident, he was seen holding a knife to Claire's throat. In another, he was witnessed punching her repeatedly. Then he was caught trying to choke her. Despite pleas from her family and friends... Claire stayed with Hobson and refused to press charges against him. Investigators continued their search for Mark Hobson in the days after the murders. Kay, his former wife, made an appeal on July 25th, saying, Mark, I urge you to turn yourself in. Many people love you dearly. They will all be there to support you, but you must contact the police or a solicitor. Hundreds of houses were searched and police protection was given to the people deemed at risk of Hobson's murderous intent. Road checks were carried out throughout York before the search expanded nationwide. Calls flooded the North Yorkshire police line as people reported sightings of Hobson throughout the countryside. 
Detective Superintendent Javad Ali addressed reporters at a press conference. His advice to Hobson was to give himself up immediately. The SRE confirmed that Claire Sanderson had died before her sister was lured to the flat, and he asked anyone who saw Diane on Saturday, July 17th after 7.20pm to contact the police, as that was when she was last seen. Detective Ali said, Mark Hobson is a dangerous man. It is essential we speak to him, but on no account should any member of the public approach him. We are working around the clock, and this will continue until we find him. A hunt will be relentless, and we will find him. Joan and James Britton's daughter Catherine Wilkins also spoke at a press conference. She described the loss of her much-loved parents. All I can say to whoever is responsible is please give yourself up. You must know the damage you have inflicted not only on your victims but their relatives who will have to live with this memory for the rest of their lives. Catherine Wilkins called the murders of her parents and the Sanderson sisters a senseless waste of human lives. She asked why anyone would want to kill them. Claire and Diane Sanderson's heartbroken parents also released a statement. It read, Words cannot express how we feel about the sudden and unexplained deaths of our two beautiful daughters, Claire and Diane. We would urge anyone who has any information which could assist the police in their investigation to contact them. We now want to be given some privacy to spend some time with our close family during these difficult and trying times. Blair Sanderson's friend Kelly Williams spoke to a journalist for BBC Radio and said that Mark Hobson had a very charming sight but warned people not to be taken in by him. After Hobson had been on the run for a few days, the police played a tape-recorded appeal to a packed press conference. It was made by Hobson's mother, Sandra. She said, Mark, I've been thinking of you since I was last with you. I know things are difficult, and you might be thinking about what to do next. Please slow down, and please don't hurt anyone. There are people who can help you. Please do this for yourself and for me and the family. There were fears that Mark Hobson was planning on staying hidden. He had been seen reading an SAS survival book. A further report came in that he was also witnessed attempting to sell Diane's car for cash to raise funds and conceal the fact that Diane had driven to the house. At around quarter to four on the afternoon of July 25th, 2004, officers received a call from a shop owner to say that he had seen Mark Hobson in a field along the A19 York Thirsk Road in North Yorkshire. 
Petrol station owner Derek North had initially recognised the accused killer when he walked into the shop holding some loose change. North later told the press, I knew it was him from his earring, hair, nose and scar over his eye. He bought a few things and paid for them with some change he had. He didn't look good. He looked tired, as if he had been sleeping rough. He was in the shop for about three minutes and then left. I knew he wouldn't get very far because he was on foot. I don't think he realised that I had recognised him. Derek North asked Robin Wilson, the owner of an upholstery business next to the garage, if he thought the man running towards neighbouring fields was Britain's most wanted man, before Wilson phoned the police. Within minutes, officers arrived with a search dog and began running through the field towards some farm buildings. It was not long before Mark Hobson was seen, and officers made an arrest. Hobson offered little resistance, as he was placed in handcuffs before being bundled in to the back of a police vehicle. As he was driven away, Yorkshire residents breathed a collective sigh of relief after the week-long nationwide manhunt. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When Mark Hobson was apprehended, He had a knife in his possession. It had been taken from the Britons' home. 
Hobson was thought to have been hiding out in an abandoned agricultural unit. It seemed as though he had not eaten or drank anything in days. The garage where he was seen was just a few miles from Strensel, the village where Joan and James Britton were murdered a week earlier. Hobson was taken to the hospital to be treated for dehydration. Soon after, he was discharged and transported to Harrogate Police Station for questioning. Mark Hobson was shaking throughout the police interviews. He did not deny the charges that were put to him, but he said he could not remember anything that had happened. Hobson was charged with the murders of Claire and Diane Sanderson and James and Joan Britton. He was remanded into custody pending a trial. The following spring, Mark Hobson's barrister Jeremy Richardson QC told those present at Teesside Crown Court that Hobson had admitted responsibility for the killings of all four victims. On April 18th, the hearing was held at Leeds Crown Court where a prosecutor for the Crown detailed the truly abhorrent facts of the case. Hobson had entered guilty pleas, sparing his victims' families the anguish of a trial, but the details were still laid bare. Investigators believed that Claire Sanderson had been attacked and bludgeoned 17 times with a hammer around July 11th. The court heard that Mark Hobson had been calling sex chat lines, both gay and straight, for almost a month before the murders, a total of 68 times. Hobson had told the police that he had spoken to Claire for a number of days after her death, referring to her as a, quote, China doll, before washing her body and wrapping it in several bin liners. On July 17th, he called Diane and told her that Claire was sick. Worried, she left her parents' home and drove to the flat. The prosecution said that Hobson had made a list with names of people he supposedly intended to kill, including Claire and Diane's parents, George and Jacqueline, and his ex-wife's family members. Some of the notes Hobson had written read, Ring die, Claire poorly, go dies, bring battery charger off George in garage, Jackie in house. On Hobson's to-do list, he had written, Use and abuse at will. Do die here. Disable all. When Diane Sanderson arrived at the flat, Hobson attacked her with the same hammer he had used to kill her sister before subjecting her to a, quote, macabre and bizarre sexual assault. He had hogtied her wrists and ankles before taking her life. It was then Diane's mobile phone rang. Mark Hobson had no issues answering the call. It was Diane's boyfriend, Ian Harrison. He had been friends with Ian for some time and had even been the one to set the couple up on a blind date months earlier. 
Ian Harrison had told the police that Hobson made excuses for the smell of decomposition and blood on the couch, and even followed Ian upstairs when he went to use the bathroom. After the forensic analysis was complete, officers found that the bathroom in the home Claire Sanderson and Mark Hobson shared had been cleaned with bleach after Hobson had washed his victims' bodies before moving them into a bedroom across the hall. Claire and Diane Sanderson's parents were struggling to cope with their grief and the horror of finding their daughter's bodies. George Sanderson had attempted to take his own life when he felt unable to put the sight out of his mind. He wrote a statement about finding his daughters which read in part, I went over and grabbed hold of them. I knew at that moment that Claire was inside. I looked back to Diane and I wanted to cuddle her. I wanted to take the bag off her face but something stopped me. At some point I touched Diane on the leg. I don't know what he had done to her. I thought he had raped her. He had taken away her dignity from her. She lay there with no clothes and covered in bruises. Diane was lifeless. I knew she was dead. Jacqueline and George Sanderson spoke about their daughters and said that Claire and Diane were their life. Since the incident, they felt as though they had nothing to live for. Speaking about their daughters, Claire and Diane's parents said, They came into this world together and left it so tragically together. No one can ever know how empty we feel without them, and we will never ever understand why this terrible thing had to happen to two beautiful, loving girls who were just about to start the best journey of their lives. Diane's boyfriend Ian Harrison said that he had been in counselling for months after discovering the bodies and was still experiencing nightmares. He described how he was unable to manage his depression and used alcohol to numb the pain. Ian stated, I have her picture in my bedroom. I talk to her every day. I'm just torn to bits. I can't go to work. Barrister Paul Worsley QC detailed to the court the attack on Joan and James Britton. He said that Mark Hobson had broken into the house and went through the couple's bedroom after he had attacked them downstairs. Worsley said that James Britton was beaten and stabbed before Hobson attacked James's seven-and-a-half-stone wife in the hallway. The barrister told the court, Mrs. Britton pushed her little walking frame and with her poor eyesight must have heard noises of the attack on her husband and gone towards it. The Britons' GP had written a statement that they were so frail they could have been knocked over by a feather. After the knife Hobson had taken with him broke in Joan Britton's back, 
he took another knife from their kitchen and hid in the countryside for eight days. James and Joan Britton's daughter Catherine said in a statement at the hearing, Although my parents were elderly, he didn't have the right to say when and how they would die. Anyone who came into contact with them will remember their kindness and helpful nature. They deserved to live out their lives in a peaceful and quiet way and didn't deserve the horror that came their way that Sunday afternoon. Mark Hobson had been evaluated by psychiatrists who diagnosed him with depression and a personality disorder. Still, they said that the diagnosis did not explain or excuse his actions. The judge said that it was plain that Hobson had been abusive towards Claire Sanderson. When he tired of her, Hobson fixated on her sister Diane, who did not reciprocate his feelings. Mr Justice Grigson said that Hobson had battered Claire with a hammer in as brutal and callous a way as possible to imagine before placing a plastic bag over her head to end her life and plan to conceal her body. Speaking about Diane's murder, the judge told the court that it was clear that she had suffered not only terror and pain, but sexual humiliation at Hobson's hands before she died. Mr Justice Grigson then said that neither James nor Joan Britton were capable of offering any resistance when Hobson broke into their home. Hobson savagely attacked and killed them regardless. The judge said, These killings were rendered even more sinister in that you did not have available to you even the twisted sexual desire that motivated you to kill Claire and Diane. As the judge came to pass his sentence, he spoke about the aggravating and mitigating factors that must be considered when deciding what term a convicted person must serve. Hobson's barrister asked that credit be given to his client for his guilty plea, as he said he could have chosen to present a, quote, preposterous defence, but did not. Jeremy Richardson QC said that Hobson had accepted that he had visited torment on the families of the deceased beyond compare, but asked that a life sentence starting at a minimum of 30 years be imposed. Mr Justice Grigson said, The one mitigating factor is that you admitted your responsibility for these deaths at an early stage and pleaded guilty. I am required to take that into account. I do so, but it cannot affect the sentence that I pass. By your deliberate actions, you not only killed four wholly innocent people, but devastated the lives of those who love them. The damage you have done is incalculable. The enormity of what you have done is beyond words. The sentence is life imprisonment on each count. And in respect of each count, life means exactly that. Throughout the legal proceedings, Mark Hobson remained silent. 
he did not offer an explanation for the crimes he committed. His defence counsel said that the only matter for them to decide was the length of his client's minimum sentence. However, in May 2005, Mr Justice Grigson made legal history in Britain by imposing a whole-life tariff on a defendant who had pleaded guilty to the crimes he was charged with. Mark Hobson would never be released. Cries of joy and relief echoed through the courtroom as the victims' families heard the verdict. Diane and Claire's mother called out to Hobson, You bastard! Rot in there! Rot in hell! Speaking about what happened to their daughters, Jacqueline and George Sanderson released a joint statement following the sentencing. They said, How could anyone be such an animal? Claire and Diane did not deserve to die such horrid, violent deaths, both ending up naked with a plastic bag over Diane's head and Claire inside a black bag. They didn't deserve to end up like that. Though we were advised not to go and see them because of the state they were in, we did get to see them for the last time at Sheffield Mortuary. You can imagine what they looked like. But to us, they were our beautiful daughters Claire and Diane. We will never forget that Sunday morning. George and Ian finding Claire and Diane and George coming home to break the news of their horrid and cruel deaths. It was so unreal and still is. We are both full of hate and we will never get over what that animal did to our Claire and Diane. We will never get over it and will never see things in the same way. He not only took Claire and Diane away from us, He took our future happiness away from us. He took the hope of us ever becoming grandparents and having a normal family life. We would like to thank everyone who helped capture him. So where are we now? Mark Hobson filed an appeal against his sentence in June 2005. His barrister argued that a fixed term was more appropriate than a whole-life tariff, as Hobson pleaded guilty. Upon hearing news of the appeal, the director of the Victims of Crime Trust, a charity that supported the families affected by serious crime, spoke to a reporter for the Yorkshire Press detailing the responsibility the justice system has to those bereaved by homicide. Clive Elliott said, This is a clear demonstration of how murders not only destroy the lives of the victims, but also the families and communities affected by the crimes. It is the families of the victims who are left to suffer a life sentence as well after losing their loved ones, 
and life should indeed mean life for a killer. The criminal justice system should focus on the needs of the victims' families to ensure that proper justice is done. There is a responsibility on the criminal justice system to ensure that Hobson is never released. Rather than the courts focusing on what his apparent needs are, let us focus on the needs of the families of the victims and the communities which have been affected by the crimes. In November of that year, Mark Hobson's barrister presented his case at the Court of Appeal in London, arguing that Hobson be allowed to appeal his sentence. Jeremy Richardson QC said, This was a very, very serious case of its kind. There was a guilty plea. The applicant is entitled to have some, very little credit from that and to have a determinate long period before he can apply for parole. It may be that he will never be released even if you are with me, but at least the law is properly reflecting a guilty plea in these circumstances. The Court of Appeal found that while the barrister had made a succinct and sensible submission, Even Mark Hobson's counsel accepted that a murder might be so heinous that a whole life term would be appropriate, despite a guilty plea. Then Lord Chief Justice Lord Phillips said, The facts of these four murders are so horrific that a whole life order was inevitable, guilty plea or no. No one, knowing the facts of the case, could be in any doubt as to why the judge had given no effect to the guilty plea. The court denied the application for permission to appeal. Mark Hobson will spend the rest of his life in prison. As the facts of the case and Hobson's previous criminal history came to the public's attention, many were furious when they learned that the killer could well have been in prison at the time of the murders, that he'd been sentenced to a term behind bars for the assault on William Brace in 2003. Judge Scott Wollstoneholm had imposed 100 hours of community service in what was deemed an act of excessive self-defence. However, at the time, Hobson had not been convicted of a violent offence in over a decade. His probation officer perceived him as a low-risk offender. Those people involved in capturing and convicting the quadruple murderer were awarded merits for, quote, outstanding leadership, professionalism, dedication and commitment for their work on Operation Chive, the investigation into Mark Hobson. Derek North was also commended for recognising the killer in his garage. Some convicted murderers who have received whole-life tariffs have unsuccessfully appealed their sentences citing that their human rights are being breached as they have no chance of rehabilitation. 
judges were granted the power to impose whole life orders in 2003. Prior to that, only the Home Secretary could decide that a convicted person could never be released. When the case came to a close and Mark Hobson had been sentenced, the lead investigator, Detective Superintendent Javed Ali, spoke with journalists outside the court. His comments were widely reported. D.S. Ali said, No one who has heard of these horrific crimes can be surprised at the severity of the sentence. I believe it is totally right and fitting that Mark Hobson is never released. For me, today brings a conclusion to the most horrendous case I have had to deal with in my 22 years police service, but for families and loved ones the victims have left behind, this does not bring about closure. My thoughts are with them and I only hope they gain some comfort from the sentence. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.